You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season five, episode four. This episode is sponsored by Kilns College. Kilns College offers an affordable one-year online graduate certificate in theology, arts, and culture. Connect with creatives from all over the world exploring restorative justice through the arts. Visit kilnscollege.org to learn more. Found art has always held a special place in my life. Having grown up in the rural South, where it's common to see dilapidated houses peppering sparse country roads, porches decorated with couches and broken washing machines, old stereos and car parts spread across dirt yards. But for the creative mind who is able to take these throwaway items, bits of broken wires, bicycle tires, and busted garden tools, and transform these into meaningful works of art. This is a creative process that seems deeply transformative on both the physical and metaphysical level. I can't help but think of the saying, the stone which the builders rejected as worthless has become the most important of all. This seems to embody the beauty and the redemptive quality of found art. I recently had the honor of meeting African-American found object artist and musician Lonnie Holly, along with his manager, Matt Arnett. We sat down together for a conversation about Lonnie's life, his art, and music. And the scope of Lonnie's art spans a wide spectrum of drawing, painting, narrative sculpture, photography, performance, and sound. This was truly an incredible conversation I believe will challenge and inspire you to think about creativity in new ways. But it was absolutely impossible for me to contain the full scope of our conversation into one episode. So I'm offering our patrons an additional segment of the conversation about Lonnie's film, I Snuck Off the Slave Ship, which premieres at Sundance Film Festival this year. You can find links to become a patron of the podcast, as well as links to Lonnie's work in the show notes of this episode. This is my conversation with Lonnie Holly and Matt Arnett. I'm thrilled to be sitting downtown Greensboro in the Elsewhere Art Museum with two incredible artists that I've just connected with. And this is Lonnie Holly, and then Matt Arnett, and I appreciate you guys joining me for this episode on Makers and Mystics. I thank you for allowing us to be a part of your podcast, right? Yeah. This is a wonderful place to be. You know, you can just look around and see all the wonderful things that uh, this woman actually collected in her life and kind of preserved mm-hmm. for others to use. Yeah. So it's just it's elsewhere is a, a wonderful place. And I just think it's our third time here, right, Matt? That's right. Yeah. And it makes a it makes yeah. a pretty uh, wonderful. And unfortunately, it's a podcast and not a video because That's it's right. a beautiful place and it's uh, it's inspiring to be. Yeah. Here. And and for the listeners that aren't familiar with elsewhere, it's a three story building downtown Greensboro that, like you mentioned, that a lady had collected just a lifetime of of books and fabrics and items and, and things. Army that, surplus, furniture. Yeah, that's right. You name it. You can't, I mean. 
And now it's being used as an art museum and a found art collective and, and, and a residency, I believe. A living, you know, like yeah. a living museum. Yeah. So, Artists come and do residencies and can work with any of the material here to create work and create installations and and then it's open to the public yeah. to come enjoy it. Well, there couldn't be a more appropriate place, I think, for this conversation than the environment that Elsewhere provides. I think uh, other than this, it would be landfills. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why I said that, because it's so serious about where our materials are going to end up at. Mm-hmm. And it was just fortunate that... George's grandmother kept things. She saw something in these things Mm -hmm. that uh, most humans do not see in their materials and their values of their materials. Yeah. So for me as an artist, if I can just speak on the behalf of our concepts of uh, appreciation and how those Concepts. You can think about all of this, everything here, uh, maybe uh, a thousand times itself, just being thrown away in America every day, and what that's doing to our landfills. Mm-hmm and that deteriorating factor. Yeah. I want to come back to that question in a minute just about the found objects and everything, but we saw George. He's right here. Why don't you chime in and give us a brief elevator pitch of uh, yeah, sure. about Elsewhere. Um, so, uh, hi, listeners. Welcome to Elsewhere. <laughs> uh, Elsewhere is a, it's a living museum and artist residency uh, set inside of a former thrift store that my grandmother ran from 1939 until 1997. And during that period of time, amassed a whole bunch of inventories and objects that she um, uh, left in heaps throughout the space. But it marks an entire century um, of American cultural production surplus. Um, if you're overhearing some sounds right now, that is uh, what we call super piano bouncy ball. It's a bunch of deconstructed pianos and uh, people throw bouncy balls at them. But uh, yeah, so that I mean, that's that's what it was. And after she passed in 97, it was sitting there and I came down with a group of artists and my friend Stephanie um, and she and I kind of imagined rather than selling the stuff invite artists to come in and use the materials to make works and what would a world look like if we slowly kind of carved out that world from inside a giant block of um, not um, not clay not uh, not marble but um, American culture well I love what you've done and I love having the space and even the space that it holds in in the city here yeah so glad to be here well I'm glad to have Lonnie Man, oh yeah that's good <laughs> thanks man thanks George <laughs> thumbs up George <laughs> that was right. fortuitous that's right well um, I'd like to start if it's okay you know I, I got a chance just to do some research on your background and I'm really fascinated with you as an artist and your history and what's kind of informed the art and the music that you're making but I believe I read that you were number seven of 27 children. Is that is that right? My mother had 32 pregnancies and 27 live births, and I'm the seventh of those 27 live births. And that alone taught me a lesson on uh, how to deal with togetherness and how to understand sharing and caring and others being concerned and like uh 
I think it was Michelle Obama that said it took the whole community to raise the child. Yeah. Lonnie is a certainly unique as far as artists go, but had as unique an upbringing and George was talking about elsewhere being a century worth of materials, you know, consumer materials and Lonnie was born in 1950 right after the end of World War II in Birmingham and you know think about the time he was born in the in the 50s and there during the the height of the civil rights movement and his life was anything but normal he was taken away by a woman when he was uh really young a year and a half who was going to help his mom take care of him and she left with him and was gone for three years and ended up uh she was a burlesque dancer and came to a what they called a whiskey house right on the edge of the state fairgrounds and the proprietress of the of the whiskey house saw how malnourished the little boy was and said leave him with me you can't take care of him and the woman left Lonnie and so for the next seven years Lonnie lived in a a whiskey house juke joint mm -hmm. brothel you know mm -hmm. and and uh Talk a, a little bit, Lonnie. They called it a honky-tonk. <laughs> they called it a tonky. At, His name was Tonky. I, I always laugh at it because they called it a honky-tonk. Uh, and when I got old enough to know why they gave me the nickname Tonky, uh, because I was living in a honky-tonk. Right. His house that he lived in at the, the honky-tonk, the backyard, there was a little creek that ran in the backyard, and on the other side of the creek was the drive-in theater and next to the drive-in theater was the Alabama State Fair. And so Lonnie would, would, could go across the creek and he had jobs working, picking up trash as a little kid at the drive-in, but he figured out how to wire speakers to his roof. And so when the adults would have people over, which happened a lot, and they'd say, you know, time for the little boy to go outside, he would just climb up on the roof and watch every movie and, and of course, watching all of those movies, hearing all of that music was just imprinting in his brain. And then he would crawl through the little viaduct at the creek and sneak right into the state fairgrounds. He didn't need a <laughs> ticket. So, okay, what Matt was trying to explain were that what I were raised in the center of were this big, huge Alabama state fairground, one of the biggest drive-ins that was in the Birmingham area. And also, at the same time, right in the back, on the back area, acres of that, were a big racetrack. And then across the street from that was one of the biggest restaurants in the city called Constantine Restaurant. So these was my four kind of major places to get work mm -hmm. or to go and get entertained but I snuck in so a lot of times the reason why you hear me in, in my music telling the truth about sneaking in through a sewer pipe or, or crawling in through the little small little crevices of under the fence or, uh, or finding my way 
at the back door of the Constantine restaurant and taking out the trash and then before you know it, I'm in there washing pots and washing pans and therefore I'm busting tables now and I'm doing all of these different things and also you're getting a chance to be in the main flow of human traffic from one uh, sort of entertainment to another sort of entertainment after the drive-in close uh, and the fair closed down for the night everybody come to our house to get a shot of whiskey or get a beer or a drink of wine so this was the kind of lifestyle that I had as a child mm. I'm curious to know how you got into art like when did when did art begin to happen in your life well if you look at it the staging for art because the only thing that was missing was the term A-R-T. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I had been doing art ever since I was five, but I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing up and down the, down the ditches and the creeks. Right. Would be considered art one day. But as far as for me finding objects to play with, to find uh, f- some kind of joy in it, uh, inspecting glass and broken pieces of material stacking up. Just think about the little pieces of wood and stuff. I stuck it down into the clay where the crawfishes came out of. I wanted to see what, how deep that the hole of the crawfish were. Then I made a put a trap around that to try to catch the crawfish when it came out. But it was all of these things, bricks and stacking up glass and everything. Uh, I started it at a young age, but it's just that, you know, uh, African-Americans or blacks or uh, coloreds or Negroes wasn't considered to be artists, mm. you see. Mm. We wasn't yeah. given no name or, or, or given no reasons for our skills. We just... Mm. Just see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a when Lonnie was 11, he found out that where he was living, those weren't his real parents, and uh, that he had real that his mom lived over near the airport, and so he began, you know, when he would get asked to leave the house, he would leave and sometimes take his wagon or just walk over and be look and look for his 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 mom. And on one of those trips, coming back. Lonnie didn't know there was a curfew. Bull Connor was the commissioner of public safety and all of the stuff you've seen about Birmingham with fire hoses and all of that. You know, most people see that. That's all Birmingham. That's right where Lonnie was. And uh, he was 11 and he got picked up by the police for violating curfew. He didn't even know what it was. They took him to jail and he couldn't exactly tell him where he lived because he didn't know where he lived. He just, you know, he didn't know the address. And uh, they eventually sent him off down to a place called the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, which I've been there now and read. There's a fabulous book uh, that came out a few years ago about the place. It was a prison camp. I mean, it was a slave camp Mm. for kids, for young African-American boys and girls, and uh, people as young as Lonnie up to what, like 18? 
up to 18, and then they were sent off to bigger prisons. Mm. Right, but he wasn't charged with anything. Mm -hmm. They just, he had violated curfew, and he was there four years. Wow. His, his, his... uh, I mean, thousands of us wouldn't, didn't have really, really a reason to be there, but, you know, they was either caught running up and down the street or protecting their grandparents or parents. Or petty, you know, yeah. some petty crime that a kid would right, do. Right. Yeah, mostly at that time, it was mostly to keep uh, us from rattling together and becoming the youth group that would fight mm-hmm. on, uh, for civil rights. Right. Uh, so we. <laughs> but he we, anyway, we I, paid I just the consequences. He right. he ended up there, and his his grandmother found out that he was there, and was able to go down and get him out because he wasn't mm. there was he wasn't held there for any reason. But while he was there, he picked cotton, made uniforms for the military, everything. Worked on road crews, like chain. I mean, it's horror. You know, mm-hmm. like he's eleven, twelve, thirteen, yeah. and uh, and then he ended up. Uh, when he got out, he stayed in Birmingham for a bit, and then he went and joined his brother in Florida. And it's it's almost, I, I laugh now thinking about Lonnie's history. He's almost like Forrest Gump. Like he was, he just was in the, all these places. He ended up working at the, at the uh, Orlando Country Club with his brother on the grounds crew, and, uh, and then working in the restaurant. And he was a, he's a phenomenal chef. They were building a new place in Orlando called Disney World. And Lonnie got a job there. If you look on like the October 1971 Life magazine, there's all the Disney employees and there's a <laughs> tiny little picture of Lonnie there. But he ended up back uh, in in Birmingham and in 1979, his sister uh, lost uh, her, her son Maurice and her daughter Frida got killed in a house fire. Mm. And uh, she was you know obviously losing two children there's nothing that compares to that right and then she realized that the in order to properly bury him she needed to buy tombstones and she didn't have enough money to buy tombstones and Lonnie found a a, a stone that's a byproduct of the steel industry Birmingham they called it little Pittsburgh it's the the steel capital one of the steel capitals of the United States and um Lonnie found this material and he carved tombstones for his niece and nephew and presented them to his sister so -hmm. she could bury the kids and it immediately lifted her spirits. Mm -hmm. And I think it was that point that like something clicked, Mm -hmm. like, wait, I made something, presented it and Mm -hmm. it, you know, like the cathartic healing power that art had, although you still didn't think of yourself as an artist. Yeah, it was after the firemen came, right? It was not until I was staying at my mother's house. Well, my grandfather, uh, before he died, he built this 16-room house out of found materials. So if you look at his life and my life, it was all kind of ang- wing. Like, can you imagine my grandfather's house looking like this bench? Mm-hmm. Just like this bitch, because he would find every little piece of wood that he would find along the way from home. He worked at that sloth furnace. So every little piece of wood that he would get, he would patch it up like this right here. And he would, that's what his our house was made out of. It was a found object house. Wow. From, from the woodwork 
to the big studs of railroad ties and everything being actually that that was on the bricks from the foundation on up. Uh-huh. And the steps was just a little bit of rocks or bricks or iron ore or whatever else he picked up and he made the steps with. So actually, if you look at me and my grandfather, Nim, I say Nim because he all of his friends that he probably knew probably helped him once they found out what he was doing. Um, the thing about how do we turn out to be what we are, it's kind of embedded in our lineage or in our DNA. Mm-hmm. It's an example. We are an example. I'm a hard worker. I think I'll be working until I die. I'll probably get up that morning before my death <laughs> and do something and lay on down and die. Mm-hmm. few years after that there was another fire and uh not not catastrophic fortunately mm-hmm. when the fire department showed up at the house Lonnie had continued making mm-hmm. these he had continued making art he didn't know why but the fireman came and when the fireman was there he saw all these things Lonnie made and he said to somebody who's the artist here mm. And Lonnie didn't even know what that was. Mm-mm, mm-mm. He was like, "What you know?" And the guy told Lonnie about art and the museum. And didn't he ask if he could tell his friend from the TV station? What, he- what happened were the fireman m- mentioned who's the artist, and I'm looking up at him, and I didn't know what art were. And he said, "This guy sure is not an amateur." And I'm looking up at him, and he said, "Who did all of this?" And then I said, I did. He <laughs> said, you did. <laughs> and so the piece that they had just pulled off of the house, but the fireman saw that it was President John Fitzgerald Kennedy and the, the tar and everything had wasted down on his sculpture. And they took it down so easy because it looked at almost just like him. He said, you did this? <laughs> and then he went running to the truck and he got on the call for Channel 6 to come out and take a look. He said, you all got to come out and see this incredible stuff that's here. And uh, it was just almost like, my thing is, what do we say is a spiritual happening? Mm-hmm. What do we put into the category of it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Think about a woman having 27 children, and during that time, they might have been suffering some of being hungry or needing clothing, needing shoes and things. And this is what I had been praying for for my mama. I, I wanted to come home, and I wanted to make a change for my mama now. And then my sister ended up losing her children in the fire. And then we end up having another house fire. So it one fire took away two children that got a lot of attention on the art. And then that made me start doing art enough to try to have the money to pay for the burial of her children mm. by selling little bitty, what I call uh, memory stones to go up on their shelf. Mm. And so that's the kind of way that I came into the arts. Mm-hmm. That's the way I got my title, Lonnie Bradley Holly Sr., an African-American artist from the Lords of London. 
And that's what started my art career. I read a couple things in your biography that I wanted to ask you about. And and one, uh, you already mentioned the fire and your sister's children. And one of the things that you wrote in the biography that you felt that it was a divine intervention that led you to the specific materials that you used for those those headstones. Tell me about that. I think the, the action that was taken in a, in a more like a spiritual guidership because mm-hmm. a lot of times people have a tendency to call you a lie when they said that you are guided towards something or you are led to something and that something end up being the total flip of your whole life. Mm-hmm. It just turns you into something different. It just snatches you out of a condition and reconditions you and puts you there. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I think if I hadn't went walking, trying to solve not my problem, but my mother's problem and my sister's and brother's problems, my relatives' problems, my uncle with one leg, my grandmama that was still digging graves at 82 years old, all of these problems that I had, and me walking and trying to think of something that I could do to help all of these people uh, were this finding of this something. Okay, now once I found it and went into the basement and I got my grandfather's tools, I had to be, in a sense, reborn, uh, be still. I had to do all those parts of the Bible, be still and know that you can do this cutting, shaping, forming, that you can do all of this stuff that would one day be looked at as art. So my life just totally changed. My working habits, what I did in order to get some of my materials to my mother's house, because my mother, matter to tell you, we lived way up on a hill. So I would make carts like the agents will make. No way, no motor. Huh? <laughs> I was just pulling them yeah. huh? and loaded up with stone. Wow. Everybody say he gone stone crazy. <laughs> huh? I would be sitting out yeah. in the middle of the night, 12 and 1 o'clock, yeah. having a big old crosscut saw, yeah. just cutting my material, cutting mm-hmm. it, cutting it, shaping it, and, 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 and wow. working on it. And it took all of that, but again, if you look at that's re that was remolding me mm-hmm. and fixing me, yeah, in order for me to be conditioned, yeah, to who I, I am today. Well, one question that I wanted to ask you because I've been fascinated with found art. I've done a lot of research on Howard Finster and different artists. And one thing that fascinates me about this genre of art making is you 
take things that other people throw away. You take things that people would see as trash, things that people discard and have no use for, but then you find something beautiful in it. You find something life-giving in it, you know, and, and you take these objects and you create art. I guess, you know, some you've heard that the the cliche people say one man's trash is another man's. I'm sure you hear that all the time. But tell me about what draws you to these objects? What do you see in them that makes you want to make art from them? Really, I'm not a first-time user of these concepts. Uh, you got to remember, it's kind of been passed down from generation to generation in African Americans' history of using objects and putting them together. Some of them were so scary because they was of bones and they was of animals and they was of blood and they was of hide and they was all of these things but they were still considered to be a collaboration of found objects so if you look at it over the periods of time we didn't see all of that coming along with the africans from africa and then being a part of actually their mentality to shape and form or look at something or you think about how African Americans was just given the thrown away of a little bit of fragments of something, and then they had to take and make do with it. So with that as part of our history, it was easy for me to be looking back at grandpaps and all of the things that he did, and then using some of those gestures. And what I do now, it was easy for my art to become this, that, or the other. So the constructive manner of really the working of those tools and bowing holes and tying up with the wires and drilling and nailing and all these other things that comes along with it, it was the same thing, the same thing of African art, earlier periods of African art. Well, and I think the the objects that Lonnie uses, to him, they have a power. Mm. You know, if a, and I've watched Lonnie for years, you know, go and walk and go through junkyards, but also just creek beds and mm -hmm. find things and pick it up. And he'll tell, you know, he'll pick a thing up and say, this was a you know, a handle of a this and it mm. did this. And it's like, so using that in a work of art, he brings everything he makes, brings with it the power and the meaning of what that previous thing was. Mm. So what he's making is far more powerful in meaning than just an artist, you know, picking up a paint and a brush or a block of marble and carving something into it, Lonnie's art, every piece he makes, has power and meaning before he even puts the work together. But then to take, there's also something uh, in a way almost subversive about saying, you, mainstream culture who controls everything, you have thrown all this stuff away because you have not you don't have any more use for it mm. much the same way you've thrown us away wow, and yeah. said we don't have value and what we're going to do is i'm going to take all these things that you say have no value and i'm going to put them together maybe even make a piece about you <laughs> that's beautiful that has 
more power than the objects. I think it was our friend Mary Lee Bendoff, who's one of the G's Ben Quilters, and um, maybe people know who they are, maybe they don't, but Mary Lee Bendoff, who's one of the quilt makers, explained her process, and it's not unlike Lonnie's. She uses materials that the men wore in the field, the denim pants and the overalls and the dresses that the women wore uh, in the cotton fields and takes those fabrics and cuts them up and makes them into things that six months ago they were on the wall at the Metropolitan Museum across from Jackson Pollock and, you know, Clifford Still and, and you know, just whoever, you know, the great modernist painters, abstract expressionist painters. And she said, when she was explaining her process, she said, when somebody asked her why, you know, you're like, you can get any material you want. You can go to the fabric store and buy the fanciest fabrics, which you can. But she said, I use old materials because the clothing and the stuff people have worn have the love in it mm. that the person who wore it Mm-hmm. gave to it it and has so a spirit about it it mm-hmm. has the love and, and the it, spirit the human spirit about it mm-hmm. of the person who made it and that's yeah. what I want my quilts to have yeah. mm-hmm. that's and awesome that's very similar to the tradition of found object sculpture that Lonnie comes out of but a lot of these things if you look at it it was just like somebody had a pot that belonged to their grandmother or grandfather all the way down to the broken debris of that pot they kept it because they knew that was once upon a time grandma pot or an old pan that had rusted and holes was rotting through and then only thing that i did was took that pan that had some old overgrown bush that had grown through instead of chopping it the bush out and chopping the root off I just took the whole thing and just shook the dirt off of it and showed the people the concept of what some other woman or man might have done. So my thing was more like a place, I call it placement, placement of someone else's habit to show that African Americans were doing these things way before I was even born. Lonnie can look at a piece of art that he made in 1985 and go, oh yeah, that's that doorknob came from Mama Reed's house. That came from here. This was from, the, like it, because he wasn't able to learn in those days how to read and write, he had to make, you know, like you and I might keep a diary or, you know, even take photographs, family photographs. Lonnie had to make all that stuff. Mm. So like you go to his house and there's things hanging and there's, there it's stuff every you know from every trip he takes he gathers materials and he makes something and it hangs up and it's no different than at my house there's a picture of me standing you know from this time i got an award and lonnie makes his own award you know he makes his own memories of those i'm gonna say uh good night and thumbs up for my for mother universe <laughs> thank you for inviting me uh, to be on your podcast yes thumbs sir. Up for universe. i'll see you up there that's later. right <laughs> Thank you for joining us for the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and look us up at makersandmystics.com. We'll see you next week.